Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin, how are you? Listen, listen, you know, <laughs> tell me all the things. <laughs> I think the New York Times or the New Yorker sent me an email a couple weeks ago and had an article about how we were all buried under emails oh. and, and yes. how email is crippling us. <laughs> and you know how a couple weeks ago we we deepened our relationship with Todoist. Yes. <laughs> Do you know how many overdue items I have? I, because I do. Because, because my <laughs> list is as great as yours is. Listen, it's so funny you say that. Like I always look at that list and I'm like, oh, it would be really great if I could actually knock that overdue item off my list today. And then I'm like, mm, nah, it's right. not gonna happen. <laughs> Right. And I, and like the thing that I don't get, and it's, you know, maybe we can, maybe we can do a series on, on this is like the demand on my time yeah. feels criminal. Yeah. It's, and, it's and I know that I'm, I know that I'm not alone Correct. On, on, on this. And, and I just feel really curious why we are demanding so much of cultural workers right now. I think there's this there's this disconnect between um, labor and um, physical location. I think for for so many years we have identified the the going to work thing as I I have. A system by which I get up in the morning. I have a time which I have to leave. I, I arrive at my workplace. I work for a set number of hours. I then am able to shut things down and get back in my vehicle or get on the train or walk to my home. Right. And there's this, there's, that is not our life anymore. Right. Our lives, spe- specifically those of us that work from home and those of us that are doing this work in what feels like a 24 hour cycle, but really is more like a 17, 18 hour a day cycle has become problematic because our need to set boundaries equals our, an elimination of income for right. us. Like bound, right. boundary setting is no longer honored as something that we have to do for our health. Right. It, it, it equates to someone just walking away from Right. Uh, us be, uh, being interested in us even contributing. Right. And well, so and, yeah, and you know, I mean, you know this and the, the podcast audience knows this. Um, you know, I, I like to go to bed like no later than 10. Yes, do you know do. what, do you know what time I've been going to bed this entire year? I, I don't, I, I do, but why don't you tell our listeners what time? 
Midnight or after? Midnight, I know. I know. You know, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm no good after 10 p.m. I know. I mean, you are if you've got a couple bourbons in you. Right. But you're no good after 10 p.m. if you're trying to use your brain and yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, I am I am 100% on board with this. It, it is, it's exhausting and it is criminal. And we have got to figure out a way out of it. Um, mm. At the same time, you and I both were able to have what in some ways, in some small ways felt as if um, a semblance of normalcy this past weekend. Yeah. Which is so remarkable considering how long we've been quarantined and how kind of chained we've been to our homes. Um, I went bowling, which I mean, seems completely pedestrian and uninteresting to many of you. Yeah. But just the fact that my body physically walked into an indoor space where I, I still wore a mask, but I drank a bourbon and I picked up a 13 pound ball and I rolled it down a lane and I hit some pins and I did that in the company of humans that have also been vaccinated felt like a liberating experience to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, 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 same on Saturday, uh, Aaron took me to a dance performance mm -hmm. at this really beautiful venue. I, I think actually you would really like the place. Um, it, it's an arts facility and they have performance art there and they also have different kinds of art displayed. Yeah. Um, it's just, there's a, there's a beauty to it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a beautiful day on Saturday. And when we arrived, uh, they had like uh, a little bar where you could get a drink. And so we both had a glass of wine and just got to sit out in the fresh air. The sun was shining. I had real clothes on. <laughs> right. You weren't wearing, you weren't wearing your, your, your daddy tank right. and you know, right. your, yeah. <laughs> and so like, we saw this, um, the show 38 minutes, really remarkable, beautiful show. If you're in the Nashville area, go see Prism. Um, it was choreographed by um, a Latino uh, and, you know, I just, I got a chance to talk with him and I talked about how, as I watched the artists, the dancers engage with the material that they had in place, they had these strings from the floor up to the ceiling um, making a kind of barrier and it was a it was a, a cylinder barrier thing and the dancers engaged with it inside the barrier and outside the barrier and there were other other of these kinds of barriers but I I said to David I said it reminds me of this Nahuatl term uh, Nepatla which uh -huh. means in between and like threshold space and he said exactly and so yeah. I, was I mean, like, I saw your pictures and I was just like, I was obsessed. Yeah. I, I just, I can't, I'm so glad you got to experience it. Yeah. And so, you know, now I'm like thinking um, maybe this dream of mine to build a body of work around art and social healing can, can emerge, you know, but then we went to Attaboy's, my uh, favorite place for I a cocktail. I love Attaboy. And um, sat outside and um, so good. The person 
who was smoking finally left so then I could breathe <laughs> right. easier. Um, but yeah, it was just a really lovely afternoon. We were home by 7.30. We cooked dinner. I think we watched um, some Don Draper on uh-huh. on TV and um, and then like went to bed super late. But uh, it was a really good Saturday. Yeah, like we are seeing these glimpses of normalcy that are starting to make me at least as a you know seven on the enneagram and as a radical extrovert feel as if i might begin to attain like a little bit of myself again i you know there are just glimpses of it and i recognize that normal like we will never understand normal the same way again and yet we've been blessed with this kind of taste of of possibility so that's been really yeah, helpful. and and I just want to be, because I you know we both believe in science and we are still living in a global pandemic uh, amidst cascading violence, which we will talk about in a minute. Yeah, but I just want to draw people's attention to the fact that apparently on March twentieth, uh, in over forty countries across the globe there was um, a gathering that um, peacefully protested the lockdowns, the lies, the blatant manipulation to trust governments over people's own inner truth this past year. It's called Worldwide Demonstration. And this is a movement that... um, says that masks actually don't stop the spread of the virus and masks actually trigger our nervous system into anxiety and and is harmful for us. And I feel really concerned about this movement because what we know from, I mean, all the scientists that we heard not only on TV, but also in newspaper and and written articles is that some sort of face covering does in fact stop the spread and mitigates the accelerated harm that coronavirus is harming us. Yeah. And so- we, we will never know the extent to which masks have helped. I mean, I don't think we'll ever be able to put a, I mean, they may be able to estimate a percentage of, of people who have been unaffected or have had milder cases of the disease because of mask wearing. But it is, I mean, you didn't hear of a single case of the flu over right. the last six months. We went right. through an entire winter season and no one talked about a flu pandemic. Right. That wasn't because the flu miraculously went away because right. COVID was here. It wasn't right. like COVID beat it up and left it out on the parking right. lot and told it it couldn't come in the door. It's because we were taking preventative measures in other ways that assisted us in limiting disease spread across the board. Yeah. For our bodies. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm concerned about that too. But, you know, I mean, we could be here all night talking, talking about all the issues. And- I, know. I know. And instead, we are going to move on to the amazing guests that we have joining us yes. today. 
So as, as all of our listeners know, we have started a series um, that allows us to kind of stand in solidarity with our Asian American friends, with the kinfolk that we do work alongside in the world or that are doing amazing things that we really believe need to be highlighted. But more than that, we want to really lift up the fact that Asian Americans are being targeted by racist activity, are being harmed by violence, and are being, um, you know, kind of minimized in our world in ways that we have not seen in, um, you know, probably 16, 18 years. And so we have we are we are partnering with our our Asian American kin to to have critical conversations around uh, what we need to be doing to create a sense of social healing, how we are to be community with one another, and and what it might look like for us to be in solidarity in in radical solidarity with each other in this in this movement. And so last week we were really, um, really amazingly blessed to have Alex Wong on. I, we hope you have listened to that episode. We re-recorded with Alex after the um, horrible events that happened in Atlanta, um, targeting um, Korean and Vietnamese and, and Chinese American or Chinese American women. And we. Um, we are going to expand that conversation today with a friend of mine who I've known for several years now um, and is a interfaith social justice mama. Like she, she is, um, she does this work in the world in a way that many of us can only dream and she's been able to do it in a way that really blends all of the pieces of her activism, as well as the talents that she brings to the table um, in really beautiful ways. Yeah. And so we are welcoming um, Salah, Sahar Asalani to our podcast today. Um, Sahar is uh, hails from uh, New York um, by way of California. Um, and we'll let Sahar tell you a little bit more about herself as we um, enter into this conversation. We would really love to welcome Sahar into the podcast. Oh, hello, everybody. Salam alaikum. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, Salamu alaikum. <laughs> so good to see you. Oh, my so much, such an honor. I tell you guys are amazing. Just a huge fan of both of you. Mashallah, mashallah. Well, we're really thrilled you're here. We're really thrilled that you're um, willing to have this conversation with us. Um, one thing I didn't mention in your introduction is that you are um, you are Iraqi, Iraqi American, and so your perspective kind of spans um, the the western side of Asian influence. And so, I'd love for you to just tell folks a little bit more about yourself. Let us know who you are, how you come at this work, and and um, and what it is that you're doing in the world right now. Oh my gosh, well, oh gosh, I think the last, well, last year, I think as all of you, I think, um, for, I think God was mad at all of us and grounded us, sent us to our room for a year <laughs> <laughs> for all of us to think and reflect, you know, but, um, but alhamdulillah, thank God it's, it's kind of been a blessing this last year. I think we all really 
got a chance to mandatory, mandatory timeouts, you know, and uh, really just sit and, and have a chance to do a lot of things that God has wanted. It's like been a, a, a year, a year long Shabbat, some of our Jewish brothers yeah. and sisters have said, yeah. you know, um, and, you know, I do hail from Iraq. Um, I came here when I was about a month old um, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My, uh, my mom and dad did their doctorates there. So I grew up pretty much in an interfaith setting. Iraq is, was a very pluralistic country um, before, forget about all the stuff that's going on right now, but yeah. before, um, as you know, the Pope just went to visit, you know, right, uh, right. that was my hometown. <laughs> so such an honor to have him, but I actually grew up in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh in Mr. Rogers neighborhood, oh. right by the, the synagogue, you know, a tree of life synagogue. And in the seventies, as a kid growing up and Mr. Rogers was a preacher, you know, and his, his way of spreading the gospel was through television. And, um, and as a kid, we would see him, you know, walking around and just, it was such a diverse, you know, diverse community. And we didn't even, we didn't know who was who, all we sort of cared about was if you were good in kickball and what you brought for lunch. <laughs> and, you know, we had Jews, we had Hindus, we had people, the Vietnamese, you know, boat population that came in. It was a very intellectually sophisticated town. So a lot of people were kids of, um, you know, university students. But at the same time, you had the working class, the steel mill, we had the Steeler Nation. So we had the kid of, you know, kids of our mayor. And, you know, it was very, very fluid. Like we didn't have a mosque, but we had our classes, our Friday uh, prayers and our Arabic classes at the Syrian Arabic church, mm. you know, and so it was just, it was just a way of life in the middle-class America that I long for, yeah. that you don't see anymore, like, right. you know, and you, you know, you don't see anymore. And uh, like, I think about all of us, the Mr. Rogers generation kids that when uh, one of our own became radicalized and came and shot up the synagogue where we used to all take swimming lessons, you know, um, it hurt, you know, it, mm -hmm. it really did. And you kind of wonder, wow, is that really only like 40 years ago or something? And I think just growing up in that interfaith, intercultural background in middle America, it just seems so foreign now that you kind of, I had more interfaith discussions at my third grade lunch table, <laughs> you know, than the ones that I try to put together now, it just happened organically, you know, and, um, yeah. and, and eventually, um, I, uh, you know, I graduated, I, I had my kids, um, I worked as a television producer in Los Angeles for about 20 years. Um, and then, you know, um, and then I ended up studying, you know, theology and stuff. And so the interfaith world was just sort of embedded in me. Um, and I think, I think the storytelling, um, is, which is amazing, the work that you do, is really the best way to discuss the topics that we have that's so embedded in scripture yeah you know, is the way of storytelling and it's a way i love reading children's books i am not ashamed to say it i mean sometimes if you want to you want to learn about sikhism as Zoroastrianism, like i'm not the i'm not a theologian i don't know the big words like estiocology or like all these words they all use <laughs> give me like a 30 page book you know and i'll really get into it yeah and sometimes that's the best way to teach children about other traditions and um and i think that that's the best way to start at a very, very young age mm -hmm. um, about what it is, how social justice and nonviolence is so embedded in our traditions. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think the way why I'm so thankful for you all for doing this podcast is that I think 
what I've learned during this Trump administration or previous, thank God, Trump administration is that one of the ultimate, one of the worst forms of violence is verbiage, the violence of the tongue. You know, you can do more damage with the violence of the tongue than with the pen, you know, <laughs> I mean, with the, with the sword, you know, um, you know, with the tongue and the pen sometimes and with the sword, you know, and just the irresponsibility of calling it the China virus. And it's almost like patterns. It's like plug and play. You know, like four years ago, it was all, all Muslims that came from Syria or ISIS. And then it was everybody that crossed the border, all Mexicans that crossed the border were MS-13. You know, right. you can almost plug and play. And now everybody from China, you know, it's just like, come on. And, and people fall for it. And just this one little, they say that there are two parts of the body that cause you a lot of problems. Okay, I'll but I'm going to talk about this part, you know, and it's just like verbiage can just cut like a knife. Uh -huh. And when one person just says one sentence or how it can completely shift the narrative and how grown, it, grown up intellectually, supposedly intelligent people can fall for it and target and start to, uh, you know, marginalize people is, is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just amazing how they fall for it. And you forget about every other marginalized community. And as, as a person of faith or a person of moral conscience, you have to stop it because you don't know who will become next. And this country has had patterns. Yeah. You know, you can easily go back, whether it's indigenous, whether it's the Mormons, whether it's, you know, LGBTQ, whether it's the Japanese, I mean, you know, whether it's Irish who weren't considered white, you know, I mean, you can just go on and on but it's just the same formula. You plug and play to divert, you know, this attention to get a, a new subject and then you start pitting people against each other, Yeah. you know? And um, I personally am just tired of this administration. Like I'm physically and mentally, emotionally exhausted, you know, and this, this thing kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, the potency um, is just, it's very dangerous and it's getting exponentially dangerous, I think. Um, I don't know, I mean, and I really thank you all because as a Muslim, I was very, very tired when the Muslim ban happened, extremely tired. And y'all, you know, we're all pretty much, you know, we're tough cookies. We can stand up to neo-Nazis, no problem. <laughs> we can jump a fence, no problem. Standing Rock, no problem. But I think, um, I think, what I learned from intersectional um, interfaith activism was that, is that sometimes when it's your own community, you cannot stand up. And when the Muslim ban happened, I remember being curled up in the fetal position in my room, my little small room, you know, and I was just crying and the side of my face was numb. And I was just like, I couldn't move. I could not move, like literally in the fetal position. I just wailed like a baby. You know, and then all of a sudden I started getting texts and I started scrolling down my Facebook and I got a text from the Japanese internment camp that my kids and I went on a pilgrimage to through an Islamic organization decades ago. I got texts from my friends who I visited in Charlottesville. I got texts from Standing Rock. I got texts from the border. Um, I think one of the sweetest texts, the sweetest things that I saw was a young man that I had visited in Immokalee, Florida. 
and he was Mexican who worked at the Ben and Jerry's Vermont dairy farms. And he was Mexican and he, we had talked through a translator, 25 year old kid, and he switched his profile picture to me and him standing outside of a Wendy's. You know, just something just that subtle, you know? And then later on, I found out that I think he got almost every, uh, every, every uh, Vermont, uh, Burlington dairy farmer just hopped and just shut down the Burlington factory, you know, the Burlington factory with the airport, you know? And it's just little solidarity things that yeah. I guess people remember along the way. And for once, you know, Jewish rabbis shutting down the Brooklyn Bridge, and I just didn't have to do anything. You know, it was just so like, you know, like it was awesome, all these drag queens shutting down the Dallas airport. I mean, like, I didn't have to do anything. And I think the best thing we can do now is just to realize that it's not, it's not the Asian American community's turn to do anything. You know, it's our turn to really just go gung ho, you know, and to stand up for them. You know, I can never go to anything regarding Iraq, Syria, Palestine. You will never see me there. I can't, I can't, I can't, but um, I'll show up anywhere else, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think that's what we have to realize is that you have, that's what being the voice for the voiceless is, I think. Um, and, uh, and so I really, really just admire you all for stepping up to the plate and doing such rapid response. I think that's the key to really doing God's work, I think, um, and rolling up your sleeves, you know, and, um, you know, so that's one of the amazing things I've learned from this whole interfaith, uh, you know, spiel that we do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So I'd love for you to tell folks a little bit about the community that you are a part of um, in New York. I know, I mean, I have heard just remarkable, beautiful stories about this intentional community that you're a part of that really kind of centers itself around peace building and nonviolence and justice. And um, it is, is really centered in a multi-faith interfaith understanding. Um, if you could share with us a little bit about that community, um, and then I, I'd love to chat a little bit more about. Sure, um, sure. Well, we were, you know, unfortunately, the community has pretty much, due to COVID, we were based at a conference center. Yeah. And most of the conference centers now have shut down. So uh-huh. the community sadly has, you know, pretty much disbanded, but it was just a wonderful time. It was, you know, different Muslim Jews and Christians all kind of living together in a community running a conference center. So it was like you had you had the three cohorts, but within the cohorts, it was very ecumenical. Uh-huh. You know, so you had like <laughs> the Hasidic rabbis all the way down to the gay rabbi with the rainbow yarmulke, you know, and then you had the Sunni, Shiites, Sushi, Salafis, you name it, all the Ushis we had over there. And then the Christian cohort, I mean, you had the Quakers to the Pentecostals, I mean, to the Catholic, you know, and so it was very, it was very um, ecumenical within that, uh-huh. you know, and so just learning the nuances of the cohorts in general was kind of fascinating to me, you know? Sure. And then working together and running the day-to-day of an operations. So you lived with people in community, but you also ran a business together. Um, and you also really, you study the traditions, you study the text, you know? And it's, it's, it's just very interesting, the nuances, but none of our problems, I can honestly say in the eight years that I was there, had really anything to do with religion. It'd be like, she looked at me funny, but she didn't do the dishes. 
she's like, by the way, she goes, can you give me a ride? But did you go to church? You need, you need to, you know, she goes, are you off for Shabbat? Did you have your iftar yet? I mean, it was just the funniest things, you know, but, um, but we never argued about whether Mary had a virgin birth or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just not the problem. It was just all really dishes. I'm telling you dishes. How are we supposed to figure out Israel, Palestine? Okay? <laughs> if we can't that. figure out the dishes. <laughs> Dishes, you know, but the thing is, is we never one upped each other on religion. We never tried out to each other, but we always tried to, um, we always tried to center each other on each other's religion. Cause I realized like, I'm no good to you if I'm not the most grounded in my faith. Like, you know, you're kind of no good to me. I mean, you guys are good to me, but like you're, it, it behooves me for you all to be the best in your own tradition. Right. You know, yeah. it does. It really does. You know, everybody has a path. And that's a holy thing. You know, it's like different languages. And so as more, you know, the best Christian you are, the better Muslim you'll make me be and the better that we can work together on, on, um, on projects for the good of humanity, the more grounded you are, the more Christ-like you are, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, same thing for Judaism. So you would hear a lot of, uh, how could I say, just lingo, you know, we would always, we would always kind of cross-pollinate with the lingo. And I think one of the, the sweetest stories is, there was an 85 year old man named Howie who helped me run the fair trade gift shop. And uh, I went to, I grew up in Catholic schools. And so moving to a Presbyterian conference center, you know, we, in Catholic schools, we sort of finished our, our, our fathers a little bit earlier than y'all. <laughs> so I just remember <laughs> y'all keep going, you know, and then as an Arab, the Orthodox, they crossed themselves one way and the, the Catholics, you know, were, you know, this East of Constantinople, West, did they cross this? So I just remember going to Catholic school crossing this way and the nuns, I'm like, no, 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 but we do it this way back home. So you start to notice like these little things that, you know, you know, you start to do, but how he, he would always see me um, on Friday and he'd be like, you're not going to Friday prayer. I'm like, oh gosh, Howie, you know, I know, come on. He's like, you can't give a week to an hour of the week to the Lord. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And finally, after about like the third or fourth week, you know, how he's like, he goes, he's like, okay, Sahar, get in the car. I'm like, I beg your pardon. He's like, we're shutting down the store, get in the car. And this man drives me in his car with a license plate that says real men love Jesus. And he drives me all the way down to the Sufi mosque, you know, the one that they twirling and everything. And he sits there and he's like, now get out. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he, even, he even grabs one of the scarves, the fair trade scarves, just so I'm prepared. And he sits there while I go do my prayer for an hour. Then I get back in the car. He drives me back home to the shop. And he's like, okay. And he's just happy as a clown, you know? And I think my uncle and Imam just probably high-fived him virtually. You know? <laughs> you know, so it's all about just, just doing that little thing to bring you closer to God, whichever path it is, you know? And um, it, was, it was really beautiful because you would, see, you would see everybody there doing their work. And, you know, uh-huh. you would have, Buddhists together, you would have Zoroastrians, you would have witches, you would have everybody together. And they were just doing their thing, you know? So amazing. Well, I, you know, I, I, um, I wish we had more communities like what you just described, um, because when we actually practice multiplicity and, and religious difference, we get a little bit closer to, I think, a, a generous humanity. 
And I was, as I was listening to you sharing, you, you reminded us of the Muslim ban that happened um, not long, not that long ago. And then the, the sort of what I would call linguistic violence from the former administration regarding people of Chinese descent and more broadly speaking, Asians. And, you know, I, you know, we started this series. I mean, we, we had this idea for the series months ago and it just so happened we launched the series the same week as the Atlanta incident. And, you know, I'm just sitting here with you sharing your story about the real beauty and relationship that was modeled um, between the traditions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm recalling the, the refrain from the white male who opened fire on, on the different salons or spas, um, that the refrain was, he had a bad day. And what I hear from you is that despite busyness, despite responsibilities, despite ongoing commitments, that there was a network of trust in the community that then facilitated an ongoing connection with people's own traditions mm-hmm. and how, how we are really missing that peace amid recurring violence. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit from, from your own, from your own tradition as a Muslim and maybe mm-hmm. how you've been in community with, with other people but you know how how we can kind how we can learn to restore these networks of trust so that we can avoid cascading violence yes yes i think in islam i think the holiest thing i think the prophet muhammad said that ultimately the holiest thing you can do is reconcile between two people you know, and peacemaking is definitely an edict in all of our traditions. Almost any faith tradition, I think peacemaking is an edict. Right. You know, I mean, another name for God is Salam, which is peace, you know, Shalom, peace. You right. know, and um, almost every faith tradition, you know, I think, I think, you know, there is the concept that is divine in almost every tradition, whether it's nirvana or enlightenment or it's God or it's the whole, you know, it's the Holy spirit, or even it's the great spirit. When I went to standing rock and I heard, you know, the chief say, Oh, creator and great spirit, something in my mind went, Oh, ding, ding, ding. Is that what he meant? You know, I think Abrahamics, we tend to be extremely elitist. You know, we don't realize it, but the Abrahamics, we're kind of, we're kind of, you know, I don't mean to say snobby, but we tend to be in our zone, you know, and in reality, we, we really do really learn a lot yeah. from the indigenous. I mean, 
come on, we're made from the earth and we shall return to the earth. You know, I mean, the pagan tradition, the cub is a pagan tradition, earth, fire, wind, air, you know, that's in, you know, that's in Bible. I mean, the Quran has those four elements, the spirit, you know, is capable of transformation, you know, um, and I think meditation, you know, I mean, we all have it in our tradition. We all have the rosary beads. We all have right. the 99, but you know, we, we didn't realize it until we started to get into our meditation. We have our Gregorian chants, yeah. you know, but it doesn't look sexy until you see somebody else do it. And you're like, Oh my gosh, we've had it this whole time. You know, right? <laughs> I mean, Confucius, Lao Tzu. I mean, we have it, but no, I, I think we underestimate the sophistication of the traditions of the Asian world, you know, and we are kind of, we are kind of stuck in our zone, you mm-hmm. know, but there's a whole world out there. I, Gandhi, one of my favorite quotes from Gandhi is he was sitting there at a meeting in London, you know, probably in one of his outfits, barefoot, barefoot, something, an outfit that he sewed. And somebody asked him, what do you think of Western civilization? And he said, it sounds like a good idea, you know, and so it just, you know, it just kind of shows you how, you know, how, you know, and, um, but there's a whole world that I personally, like, deep in my own Abrahamic faith mm-hmm. through the Dharmic traditions, you know, and through the Sikh tradition and through, you know, um, the Eastern Asian philosophies, I think, because religion really is a philosophy, you know, yeah. it really is, you know, and we're just like, oh, but, you know, and we tend to use the words like, you know, especially growing up, like in, in, in religious schools, heathen or, you know, and then you're like, oh my gosh, did we really use those words, you know? Right. <laughs> and you're like, wait a second, you know, these are some of the most, and so it is, verbiage can be violence, I think. And, and I think it really shows the lack of education in our society. You know, in the Quran, the very first word revealed to the prophet, prophet Muhammad, through the angel Gabriel, Archangel Gabriel was the word Ikra, which means to read, to analyze, mm-hmm. to think, to dialogue, to debate, you know, to use your moral autonomy. I mean, basically it means, you know, use your damn mind. He said, before you believe in me blindly, understand and reason, you know, and then make judgment on why you believe in me. Don't just walk around believing in me, you know, Bible means book, Quran means book, Torah right. means book. I mean, there right. you go. And so there's something about just seeking knowledge and, and, and the fact that people can't tell the difference between somebody from Thailand or China or Japan or Laos or, you know, Vietnam, you know, I mean, that's just, you know, or even me, they still don't know Iraqi, Iranian, or, you know what I mean? And I'm like, right. <laughs> you know, and it just seems that that's just something kind of basic. But yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know, yeah. But, but the religious people understand the difference, I think, because we do delve into that. Right. And that's where the humanity comes from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, we are so conditioned and I, I have said this a, th- a few times, you know, we are, we, and when I say we, I mean, white people, me as a white person. Um, I mean, we have been, f- for the large majority of our, of our formative years, and, and you know, for me, I, I take that as kind of the first 24, 25 years of our lives. You know, we are, we are told what to learn and we are shielded from the things that we are not to learn and the things we are not to experience. And so for many people that, that I, that I have, you know, grown up with or have been associated with for a large number of years, 
they believe that what they had to learn, the things that they were to be taught, the things that were to inform their lives were taught to them in those formative years. That there may be some kind of real life, you know, kind of understanding the world kind of lessons that you might learn in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s. But that your understanding of the world and the things that you were to, to be quote book smart on were the things that were taught to you in your in your formative years. The problem with that is that those formative years have been guided by books and education and public school systems and private school systems that are extremely heteronormative, extremely white supremacist, extremely um, Christian, in many cases, evangelical Christian, um, in many cases, Eurocentric. And so we have been conditioned to understand things or to, to, to be told that we were learning things that were important and that that was the finite level of our learning outside of whatever we were to experience as human beings in, in the real world. And, and, and that disservice that you talk of, that disservice that you speak of, Sahar, is, is the kind of disservice that our, our systems have propped up in many ways, white America and most ways, white America to understand as the teachings that they, they have informed their lives upon. And those teachings have not been interfaith. Those teachings have not understood um, the role of our indigenous populations and our um, black and brown and um, you know Muslim and Sikh and um, non-Eurocentric Christian traditions. And, and then therefore, then it becomes incumbent on us. It's incumbent on us to break from that, from that, that box that we've been placed in. But a large majority of people don't understand that they even have a box around them. They don't even know that they are boxed in, that they, that they have been conditioned in a way that was designed to be that. And so I wonder, as we're looking at this understanding of, of community and, and the beautiful ways that you have illustrated community to us through what you've described both in, um, through your tradition, but also through the ways that you've lived over the last number of years, how, how does community manifest itself and, and how does solidarity manifest itself amongst people who don't understand that they need more than what they already have at their at their feet mm -hmm. how do we how do we break how do we um how do we move ourselves into a space or or out of this space of pervasive arrogance and into an understanding of community that looks more like our traditions and that honors the wholeness and the fullness of who we are as humans I think um, I think it's I think it's also it's just always getting out of our comfort zone, mm -hmm. and it's really just listening. Um, and I think it's also just maybe not demonizing. I mean, you know, I what I just as a as a Muslim, you know, I always uh, I always try to remind my Christian brothers and sisters, um, you know, and the community in general that uh, that the word evangelical. I just don't want it to be hijacked like the word jihad. Mm -hmm. You know, since when has it been a bad thing to spread 
the gospel or the good news, you know? And so I always try to remind people to say extremist evangelical because it just, it just personally hurts me so much when I hear the word evangelical just being used in such a negative way. Cause I consider myself an event, you know, in, in some ways. And so I think just, um, just, I, I just, I hate to see the beautiful religion of Christianity being, like I said, hijacked, right. you know, like jihad. Since when is a spiritual quest towards the divine to do your very best ever been such a bad word? You know, I mean, and now we lost it. I mean, my son has a six-year-old kid named Jihad who got lost in an airport. Imagine trying to look for him. I mean, I mean, just like little things like that. And it's just like to lose the word evangelical, to spread that. And and I think even, even, even the, even the quote unquote white community. I mean, I think, cause maybe all three of us might even pass as white, you know, I mean, I've been called accused, you know, been accused of like, oh, you're a person of a white girl that passes as a person of color, or tries to person of color. And, you know, we, we uh, you know, I think growing up, I grew up a lot of my life in the South. Um, I think um, I've had a lot of conversations in Charlottesville in my time there, and I could easily pull off my hijab and pass as a white girl so quickly. And then I become a person of color the minute I wear my hijab. And I've worked in the military, you know, like I was a writer producer in the American Forces Network, just the children's channel, you know. And so I think having these conversations and listening to people and hearing their understanding, you know, hearing their stories. When I was in Charlottesville, there were a lot of people that were not on the, the far, far right extremists. They were just sort of in the middle and um, just talking to them and just saying, you know, what is it that you want and what is it that you need? And you just hear their frustrations. It's not unlike one, like the communities in Iraq or the other extremist groups in, in Burma or, you know, a lot of them are the same thing. They are out of work. They are frustrated with their government. You know, they, they gravitate towards a gang. This gang gives them an identity, a weapon, a monthly stipend. They recruit them online, you know, and there's nothing else for them to join. You know, and I was talking to some fathers you know, there's grown men in their 50s and 60s and, you know, carrying, swinging around an AK-47 and the military, obviously if somebody serves in our military for 20 years, they are not stupid. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They are not fools, you know, and, you know, and then when I start talking to them and I was like, what is it that you want? Well, first thing they are like, Jews will not replace us. I said, I'm not Jewish. And I said, you, wor- you worship the most famous Jew of all time. <laughs> I mean, you kind of have to ground them and just bring them back home to earth, you know, and then just, you know, and then just kind of say, what is it you want? They're like, well, we're really looking for a job, you know, and we have our daughters and we want to send them to college, but we're not considered anything with affirmative action. We can't even send them to community college. We're lucky if they can join the army and six months later, they're flying drones in Afghanistan. You know, they're like, we want the best for our kids. They're like, you know, you want to marry somebody from your community. We just want to save our community too. And you know, they're right. You know, like Jewish people, they would rather marry Jewish, you know, like, I mean, in some ways when you listen, you know, sometimes people just want to be dishonored and respected and have their stories heard, you know, and they just want clean water. They just want to put their head on a pillow. They want their girls to get married. They want to just retire, you know, they want to do this. And then, you know, it's just the divide and conquer mentality that I saw in, in Iraq when a virgin country is just targeted and cut up, divided up to just take over by a tyrant. 
and um, or an, you know an oppressive force, and that's very much what I've seen lately. You know um, now even you know whether it's the Asian community, who knows if it starts separating that community. There have right. been you know you know offsets of the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for Black Lives. I mean, it's separated. I mean, in the in the, the Muslim ban, I mean, I feel bad for a lot of our Arab Christian brothers and sisters. You know, Abunez from you know the Orthodox Church have been targeted. Our Sikh brothers have been targeted. The uh, Greek Orthodox. I mean, that's caused some friction in a pretty much happier environment. You know, and so the pitting of people has really, really been difficult. And I think just listening to the stories, listening to what our ultimate goals are and similarities. And just respecting the other person's perspectives, and I, I think there's just a lot of you, you, you. You know what I mean? And and um, an understanding that every everybody's going through something, mm -hmm. and and uh, and especially now with with Trump being gone, we all knew that he was going to let his his people down. We all knew. We all knew that he was never going to have a cup of coffee with them. They weren't his his, you know, education level, they weren't his economic level. So we knew he was going to make a fool out of them eventually, right? You know, but now that it's happened, we're not going to go, nah, nah, nah. I mean, we're peacemakers. So obviously, we're going to show that grace thing. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we're going to say, what can we do to heal you? You know what I mean? Because that's what we do. And it's happened. You know, they all shot and killed for them. You know what I mean? They did this, they did, you know, and then how are we going to show that grace to, to bring them back from the dark side and to heal them and to bring them back to God and just say, you know, what can we do for you? Because he's obviously not doing anything for them. Right. And I think that's, that's the humanity thing, but we can't do it unless we do op open and honest listening and engagement. And that's mm -hmm. a holy thing. Dialogue is a very holy thing. Yeah. And, you know, and showing up for each other and just, and being there without judgment, I think. And that's not easy to do. <laughs> yeah. Sahar, you have, um, you have gifted us with this conversation and I'm, I'm grateful that you took some time out of your day to spend with us, to um, share a little bit about the communities that you've been a part of and how your faith tradition has informed so much of that. Um, I would love for you to share with our listeners how they can find you, how they can be in touch with you. Um, if they have questions or would like to engage with you, what's the best place for them to reach you? Sure. My gosh, well, I'm on Facebook, Sarhal Salani, and my uh, kids opened me up a Twitter account. So it's Iraqi Sunflower at Twitter. And it would be an honor to, uh, to chat with anybody. And just keep up the great work that you all are doing. And just remember the Asian community, they uh they really need they really need us to speak up for them right now. They're going through a lot. So it's it's our turn to speak up for them now. They've always, always been there for us. They're kind of like the uh, the silent uh the silent army, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. just always constant, always constant. And yeah, you know, uh, it's our turn to speak up for them. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I just, I feel like um, we need, we need better practice of being in conversation with any type, any type of embodied difference. And I think so many of us get stuck on trying to say the right thing, 
trying to read all the books that we actually forget to be in relationship with people. And I think the thing that you brought to us and sort of enlivened our awareness is the importance of the the complex relationality that we can share from our very particular religious standpoints and how there is beauty in that and and we make something holy and sacred when we engage in that kind of relationship and so I just feel really grateful that that you've brought us back to that place Um, it's vital and you never know who you are going to learn from I mean I've learned almost everything from almost every faith tradition Mm -hmm. that has deepened my Islam I mean even from a group of atheist children I remember I was doing story time one time um, at the center and the kids were so cute and and I, I was talking to them and they're like, you know, we're talking about the concept of God and this and that. And they're like, oh, my mommy taught me what God is. And I was like, oh, really? She's like, well, they said that your God is something that we should, it's whatever we aspire to be in this world. It would be loving. It would be kind. It would be truth. It would be just. And I was like, oh my gosh, those are the 99 attributes of God. And she just like, that was out of the mouth of a little atheist girl, maybe about seven or eight. And she just gave me a de- perfect definition of God. Yeah. You know, it's like, you never know. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, we are, I mean, our theologies have way more in common than they do, that than they do in difference. And, um, and there's beauty in that commonality. Um, and just as, you know, commonality, um, commonality and community share the same root. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they are both, they are both grounded in this understanding of um, similarity and togetherness and a oneness with, um, with the other. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really, that's really what we are to be yeah. in, in the work and in the world. And let them do their own thing. Like my uncle is an imam and, you know, he rocks the turban and the cape and everything. And he always told me, he goes, if somebody needs to do cartwheels to get the divine to the divine, he says, you clear the furniture and you leave them alone. It's <laughs> 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 not your business. <laughs> that's a that's a perfect benediction. <laughs> thank you, Sahar. Thank, thank you so, so very much. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Salam. Salam. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Robin, this has been um uh, just a, a, a really beautiful conversation. And I, yeah. am, I am thankful that, um, that we have the capacity to, to do this work and um, we, have a, we have a lot to learn and we have um, gifts that come from our, our Muslim kin to, allow, to help us inform those learnings a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the thing that feels so powerful about this episode is a return to our humanity in the face of everything that is happening. And, you know, um, that's the path to liberation. Yes. And when we when we were able to practice that, uh, I think we get a little bit closer and if we could all just be practicing a return to relationship yes that then when we have a bad day 
we will make a choice to talk to someone or take a siesta or call our therapist or our spiritual director instead of enacting violence against most you know the most marginalized people so a return always a return always a return friends don't forget to follow us at activist theology we'd love to be in conversation with you um we're going to be continuing this episode or series uh over the next several weeks and we hope that you'll join us in the work of getting our hands dirty and seeking uh, solidarity and liberation for us all Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to Activist Theology dot kindful.com and click on podcast and remember activist and theology share a t the music you hear in this episode is hands dirty by our friends delta ray our sound editor and engineer is dan medley from 10 south sounds <laughs> <laughs>